Good morning, everyone. Hey, it's great to see all of you here. And if you're new at Renew Church, then it's a blessing to have you here with us this morning. And one of our traditions is after service on Sunday, we have fellowship and coffee and donuts out in the foyer. So if you're new, then please stay and uh, get to know some of the Renew family. My name is Richard Fuller, and it is my humble privilege to share God's word with you this morning. Pastor Dallas and Natalie are on a respite this weekend celebrating Natalie's birthday. So please be in uh, prayer for them to have a, just an awesome, awesome uh, time. So if you are able, please stand for the reading of God's word. We'll be reading from Psalm 23, and I will be reading from the New King James Version. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He makes me to lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside the still waters. He restores my soul. He leads me in the paths of righteousness for his name's sake. And yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil. Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life, and I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Let's pray. Father God, we just uh, so humbly come before you this morning. Father, we ask that you would meet us here. We ask that you would bless each person here and each person listening today. We ask that your Holy Spirit, Father, would fill us up. And we ask that you would fill this room, Father, with your Holy Spirit. We ask that you would open and soften our hearts, Father, that your word would rest in us today, that we may come to know you better, that we would draw near to you today, Father. And I pray that all I say would be glorifying to you. And I pray this in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. So the past six weeks, most of you have been here. We have been studying verses 1 to 3 of King David's 23rd Psalm. And what a wonderful and comforting study it has been, hasn't it? Well, the Lord is our shepherd throughout our lives. He leads us into lush meadows and to rest by still waters, and he restores our souls. He leads us in the paths of righteousness. He renews our strength. What an incredible mountaintop experience that David has described. So today, we're going to focus our study on verse 4. And I just read in the New King James Version, Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. And I want to read a couple other versions in the NLT, which is probably what you have. Even when I walk through the darkest valley, I will not be afraid, for you are close beside me. And in the ISV, it says, Even when I walk through a valley of deep darkness, I will not be afraid, because you are with me. So suddenly, all of that mountaintop experience in verses 1 to 3 
seems to have vanished as we find ourselves in verse 4 walking through the darkest valley, the valley of the shadow of death and a valley of deep darkness. Wow, what is that all about? Whichever translation you pick, I don't think I want to go there. You might be thinking, get me back on that mountaintop. Well, as Christians, I think we have all recognized that in our Bibles, there are places in Scripture that are just so powerful and so profound that to read them is to experience them. To me, Psalm 23 is one of those places. It's very personal. We are experiencing David's testimony, his personal experience with God. And we realize that David has heard God's voice, trusted God's leading, felt God's love and protection. What a great example for us to follow. As a young boy, David was a shepherd, and he kept his father's flocks in and around Bethlehem. And in Israel, where David lived as a boy, there actually is a valley, this may surprise you, called the Valley of the Shadow of Death. The Arabic name, which is the current name of this valley, is called the Wadi Kelt. It's Q-E-L-T. And it is a deep gorge in the Judean wilderness that runs from Jerusalem down to Jericho. And some of these pictures they're going to put up here are different pictures of actually the valley of the shadow of death. So as you can see, there were many steep places where sheep might fall. There were many potential predators and other dangers that the sheep had to be protected from. But shepherds had to leave their sheep to greener pastures. And to do so, they had to descend into the valley of the shadow of death. So David is walking through the valley, and he didn't know from one moment to the next what was going to happen. But rather than fear the perils in the valley, David had learned in his life to trust in God. So verse 4 is where David began talking to God instead of about God. Notice that in the first three verses, David refers to God in the third person. The Lord is my shepherd. He makes me lie down. He leads me. He restores my soul. But then when we get to verse 4 and 5, David begins referring to him in second person. He says, I will fear no evil for you are with me. Your rod and staff, they comfort me. You prepare a table before me. You anoint my head with oil. And I think it happens here because it really becomes more intimate here between David and God, doesn't it? David had lived a perilous life. And in verse 4, it seems to describe crisis points in his life. And in those times, something very deep happened between him and God. David clearly visualized ascending out of the valley because from verse 5 to the end of the psalm, we are back up on that mountaintop. He descended into the valley and he trusted every step to God. And then he ascended out of the valley in a better place. So we can ask ourselves this morning, how can we walk through dark valleys in our lives with the same 
confidence, the same trust in God that David did. Well, that is the focus of our teaching this morning. Psalm 27 says, The Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? The Lord is a stronghold of my life. Of whom shall I be afraid? With that in mind this morning, I hope we can accomplish three things. To have a better understanding of the valley, to understand why we might be in a valley, and what we must do to get out of the valley. What, I, what can I tell you this morning about the valley? If you've been walking with the Lord for pretty much any length of time, then you are most likely acutely familiar with valleys, and they're all unique to each person, aren't they? God loves us, and he instructs us in the way to go. God gives us valley experiences to draw us nearer to him, to prepare us for the task that he has prepared in advance for us to do. God created us individually for a purpose, and he is equipping us for that purpose, and part of that equipping can only happen in a valley. David emphasized, as I walk through the valley. This tells us that we're in a valley. We must move along. We must find our way. We must embrace the uncertain ground, confident that we will grow and learn because we cannot grow when we are stagnant. And yet, the uncertainty of life often overwhelms us. 2 Timothy 2 says, no matter what storm you face, you need to know that God loves you. He has not abandoned you. So what is the valley? Well, in verse 1 to 3, we're having that mountaintop experience. In verse 4, we're now walking in dark shadows in a narrow and dangerous valley where death is lurking. And then in verse 5, we seem to be back on the mountaintop with a feast being prepared for us. So what has happened here? Well, in verse 4, we descended into the valley only to ascend back out of the valley in verse 5. So we can take away from verse 4 that a valley is a place we find ourselves when something somewhat upsetting is happening in our lives all the way to something that is terribly tragic that is happening in our lives. Gone is the quiet, serene, pastoral imagery. We now find ourselves in a valley, and that valley is covered over by a shadow, and that shadow, <clears throat> shadow might be cast by death itself. Wow, what a transition from that mountaintop. But throughout our lives, Jesus guides us into the valley to get us ready for the next mountaintop. Being in a valley is to be in a place of uncertainty, a place of where we might feel threatened, a place of confusion and fear and worry and maybe despair and even tragedy. Think about the times that you have been in a valley, that time in your life when you're hurting, when you're suffering, when there's heartache and there's loss and there's loneliness. How do you deal with that? Well, these times in the valley can be confusing and difficult. It may not have been your fault, but sometimes it probably was. And then there are times when you know why you're there. You might be engaged in sin or drifting away from the Lord. And Jesus knows that he has something better for you. 
And I think we all acknowledge that once we accept Jesus as our Lord and Savior from that moment on and for the rest of the time on this earth, we are involved in a process of sanctification, which means we are constantly growing. We are moving closer and closer to Jesus. We are shedding ourselves of that old man that we were before Christ and learning to trust Jesus in all aspects of our lives. So then there is a constant progression of continual change in our Christian journey, and each season of life has lessons to teach us. And in Psalm 23, David is sharing with us his experiences in the valley, and sooner or later, and most likely often, our life journey is going to take us through dark valleys, and it is during those times that we especially need to trust that God is with us every step of the way. Romans 5 says, we can rejoice too when we run into problems and trials, for we know that they help us develop endurance. And endurance develops strength of character, and character strengthens our confident hope of salvation. And this hope will not lead to disappointment, for we know how dearly God loves us because he has given us the Holy Spirit to fill our hearts with his love. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death. Notice that David is not running. He's not rushing. He's walking. He's assured. He's unafraid. He's confident. He's trusting. I think if I wrote this psalm, I might say, there's Richard running frantically through the valley. You know, God leads us into valleys because he wants to grow us. He wants to get our attention. He wants us to be renewed in our love for him. So every time you find yourself in a valley doesn't mean you're being disciplined. There are times when God just has to bring us to a point where we are still and we begin to listen to him. Where he clears our vision. He wants us to see things how he sees them. And he wants to draw us near to him and develop our unwavering trust in him. So there's a pattern to the valley. I've mentioned it a few times. We descend to ascend. The pattern is like the letter V. We descend and we ascend. And the good news is every valley is a pathway to something better. So think about this. Do you believe that about your valleys? Do you believe this about those places of doubt and struggle and fear and despair? Do you believe God is taking you to greener pastures? Well, many of you have walked with God for many years, and you know from experience that this is exactly what he does. He doesn't promise to take us around or above pain and difficulties and struggles. No, but he does promise to take us through these things in such a way that at every point, he is working for his glory and for our good. Romans 8, we're all familiar with this, love this passage. We know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. And one of the things God wants to do in us as we study this psalm is to liberate us from trying to live in valleys in our own strength he wants to embed in us the confidence that he will be faithful and true to bring us through whatever circumstances 
we might be experiencing. In essence, he wants our unwavering trust. And David expresses his complete trust when he says, I shall not fear, for you are with me. David has fully surrendered himself to God's protection. And God has an answer for fear. In Psalm 56, it says, But when I am afraid, I will put my trust in you. I praise God for what he has promised. I trust in God, so why should I be afraid? So when you have been in a valley, have you said, Lord, help me to understand you better. Help me to know you better. Help me to draw near to you. Help me to fully experience you. Do you struggle to let God take over at these times in your life? To let go of that steering wheel and trust God? Think about this. What if the opposite was true? That God does not work with us. Would you prefer that God does not help us? Not a very comforting thought, is it? But Jesus said to follow him, meaning he is leading us as our good shepherd, that we must take up our cross. Jesus never hid the cost of discipleship. He calls for us to surrender it all to him and surrender to God's will can be more difficult during struggles and trials. 1 Peter 4 says, Beloved, don't be astonished at the fiery trial which has come upon you to test you as though a strange thing has happened to you. You know, taking up our cross means sacrifice. It means laying everything on the altar. It means putting to death that old man that we were before Christ so that only Christ remains in us. After all, we received the fullness of Christ. It's not a half-hearted commitment. It's a full surrender to Jesus. And our valley experiences help to conform us to God's will. In Ephesians 2, it says, For we are God's masterpiece. He has created us anew in Christ Jesus so we can do the good things that he planned for us long ago. So what do you think of when you think of a masterpiece? You think of a painting? Well, for a minute this morning, I want you to think of yourself as a canvas. And I want you to imagine that when you are in your mother's womb, God makes his first brushstroke on your canvas. And the artist whom is God is not finished with the painting until you are in heaven and throughout your life God is preparing you and growing you and sanctifying you to do those good works that he planned for you and each step you take towards him means another brushstroke on that canvas. And sometimes in order to paint that next brushstroke it takes a valley experience. It takes a trial. It takes walking in the darkest valley and learning to trust God even deeper. Developing a relationship with God that you're not asking for his guidance, but you're asking him to actually be your guide. And there is a significant difference. You see, a guide just gives you a little bit of information at a time. Now, how many of you use your GPS for directions? Probably all of us, right? Okay, not everybody raise their hand, but I think you probably do. Okay, well, I do too, but I must admit that I'm not comfortable if I cannot view the entire route. 
Now, I contrast that with my daughter, Brooke, who may not know exactly where her destination is, but she trusts her GPS so much she just needs to know where the next turn is. She trusts her GPS with each step along the way. Now, for example, if you're driving a car and God might say, at the next light, turn left. And you reply, okay. But then where's the next turn? Where are we going? But God is silent. So you say, God, this is uncomfortable. Where are we headed? God is silent. And you might be getting quite unsettled. You and says, God, where will we end up? What's our destination? But God is silent. What we are doing here, in essence, is we are not signing up for the journey unless we know the final destination. In our mind, to really trust God, we need to know the big picture. Yet a guide only gives you enough information to get you through the next turn. Now, let's apply this approach to being in a valley. In our flesh, we want to know what the end result is. We want to understand all of God's plans for us. But we can get so confused and make it so complicated to try to determine why God has us on this path and where that path is ultimately taking us that we then begin to question God and might no longer believe that we're even on the right path. Maybe we pull over to the side of the road and stop reluctant to do anything. This despite the reality that God has made it clear that he wanted you to take that path. But you see, it wasn't yet God's timing to show you the entire journey. We need to trust in God always and all things at all times, but often God is silent. You see, we just need to learn to trust our guide, to trust the next step. Because if God revealed the entire picture to us, we wouldn't be prepared for it, we're not yet equipped for it, and we probably wouldn't even understand it. So as we walk through the valley, God is equipping us and shaping us and growing us one step at a time. And with each new step, a new brushstroke is made on our canvas. Let me give you an example. You make a major decision that you want to move to a new state, and you've determined a location, and you ask God to bless it, essentially for a green light. And since you came up with the idea, you're very inclined to believe that God has opened that door, and you think to yourself, hey, I brought this idea to God, and I think he's blessed it. I think I'm good to go. And then over the next few years, you move several more times, each time deciding to move somewhere new and then asking God to bless it. And you convince yourself that God has led you down all those paths, but you're unsettled and you don't really understand why. And now contrast this with approaching God first. You begin the process by first asking God where he want you to be. We don't bring him the solution. We bring him our heart and our trust and seek his advice. What we have done in the first sense is we've taken that brush hand out of God's hand trying to make that brush stroke for ourselves. Can you see the difference? The King David trusted each step to God. He simply followed David was saying, even though I'm going through this very dark and difficult and scary situation, I am going to trust that God will get me through this. Now, the example I used of moving can be replaced with just about 
any important decision in our lives. But God desires that we come to him first. We lift our prayers and our petitions to him without prejudice. And we wait for his voice to lead us. That is surrendering. That is trusting. And when you realize that God is never late, it makes waiting a lot easier. So ask yourself, am I allowing God to make that brushstroke or am I just wanting his guidance so that I can make that brushstroke? I believe the best way to know God's will for your life is to say, I will to God. As he is leading you in paths of righteousness, you may not understand the path that the Lord has you on, but that is not your job. It's to trust and to be obedient to God. See, God sees the entire picture from beginning to end. And even when our circumstances make no sense to us, God is still God. And he is weaving the good and the bad together to create a masterpiece, which is you. He draws us ever near and makes a new brushstroke on our canvas with each step towards him. John 16 says, I have told you all this so that you may have peace in me. Here on earth you will have many trials and sorrows, but take heart because I have overcome the world. I really like the lyrics to, it's a popular casting crown song that's out right now called The Desert Road. And there's one line in there that says, I don't know where this is going, but I know who holds my hand. So as Christians, knowing that we will face valleys in our lives, it's really a good idea to prepare ourselves in advance. Realizing that we have no idea what valleys we might be led into, our preparations are really about how to build up our defenses, how to prepare for and thrive in a valley experience where God desires to grow us and to change us and maybe to heal us. So in thinking about this, I immediately imagined parallels between how Melanie and I came to be avid, avid, Melanie's my wife, and how to be avid hikers, most of you knew that, in the preparation process that we went through over a period of years. So when I retired eight years ago, we looked for activities that we could uh, participate in together. And we both love the outdoors, and what's better than exercising while enjoying God's beautiful creation? So I have to tell you, we were complete neophytes. And we look back and chuckle at our naive understanding of hiking. And it took us about three years to figure the ins and outs of hiking, the boots, the clothing, the hydration packs, the GPS watch, the hiking poles, how much water to carry, what to eat, the optimum pace to walk at, how to train our bodies for endurance, and we had been hiking for a few years, and I remember one trip to Yosemite, we were still doing kind of fairly moderate hikes. And we were in Yosemite Valley and looking up at those 2,000-foot granite walls on either side of the valley. And Melanie mentioned to me, she said, you know, there's trails that go from the valley floor up, up to the top on both sides, up to Glacier Point on one side and up to Yosemite Falls on the other. And my first thought was, well, I'm not doing that. <laughs> 
But soon we were determined to do those hikes and we knew we needed serious training to get to the top. So we did a series of training hikes, each one longer than the other until we believed we were ready. And then with that, we hiked up Glacier Point on one side and then a few days later, we hiked up to the top of Yosemite Falls on the other side. And we felt pretty proud of ourselves. So the next year we completed a 200 mile, 16 day hike in England, which required even more extensive training. And if we had not been properly equipped and prepared and well-trained, we could never have succeeded. But we trusted on our training and in our equipment. And one of the interesting things is that we both love going uphill. You know, downhills are not as strenuous, but going up the hill is motivating. I think it's because at the end of the climb is a summit, and it's exhilarating. In all that effort, you climb up out of that valley, and then there's a new mountaintop there. Well, in the same manner... As Christians, we can prepare for journeys through the valley in our walk with Jesus. Have you found yourself in a valley completely unprepared? Well, the Bible speaks to this in Ephesians 6. It says, be strong in the Lord and in his mighty power. Put on all of God's armor so that you will be able to stand firm against strategies of the devil. For we are not fighting against flesh and blood enemies, but against evil rulers and authorities of the unseen world, against mighty powers in this dark world, and against evil spirits in the heavenly places. Therefore, put on every piece of God's armor so you will be able to resist the enemy in time of evil. Then after the battle, you will be standing firm. Stand your ground, putting on the belt of truth and the body armor of God's righteousness. For shoes, put on the peace that comes from the good news so that you will be fully prepared. And in addition to all of these, hold up the shield of faith to stop the fiery arrows of the devil. Put on salvation as your helmet and take the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God, and pray in the Spirit at all times on every occasion. Stay alert and be persistent in your prayers for all believers everywhere. So in the same way that Melanie and I learned through many trials and errors to be properly equipped for hiking, God tells us in Ephesians how to train our minds and prepare our bodies for those valley experiences. So practically, what does that look like for us? Well, I think the first thing is we have to be sure that we have to be sure of is that we have truly surrendered our lives to Christ. We have given him lordship. And we fully trust in him. We need to know how to discern his voice. The Bible should be our sword. We need to get, be rooted and grounded in God's word and get God's word in us. And we need to have active prayer lives. And we need to be in church and in real fellowship with other believers. And we need to surround ourselves with other Christians who pray for us and whom we pray for. We need to be involved in activities that draw us closer to God. We need to serve God in all aspects of our life and share his love with those around us. And we need to be encouraging others and being encouraged. Now, if you can check all these boxes, then when valley experiences happen, then you are prepared. You've trained your mind and your body, and you know how to trust Jesus. When the bottom drops out and one bad thing is added to another, the Bible provides, right here, this Bible provides the stability that we need to make it through all trials and tribulations. 
When valley experiences happen and you haven't been trusting in Jesus with all aspects of your life, it will be exponentially more difficult when you are in a trial. Build your foundation on the rock of Jesus. Psalm 62 says, Rest in God alone, O my soul, for my hope comes from him. He alone is my rock and my salvation. He is my fortress. I will not be shaken. My salvation and my honor rest on God, my strong rock. My refuge is in God. Trust in him at all times. Oh, people, pour out your hearts before him. God is our refuge. So do you trust that the plans that God has for you are good? Because if you do, if you believe that, then you have to trust him with those plans, even if it's difficult, sometimes even if it seems nearly impossible. I love these two verses. Jeremiah 21 says, For I know the plans I have for you, says the Lord. They are plans for good and not for disaster, to give you a future and a hope. And Proverbs 16 says, We can make our plans, but the Lord determines our steps. And maybe you don't survive that valley. Maybe it is the valley of the shadow of death. But if you are saved to Jesus, the greatest thing that has ever happened to you is you get to be with him in heaven and live in your eternal home with Jesus. Now that question about why Christians experience difficulties and have valley experiences in order to draw nearer to God, led me to an interesting insight. There is a biblical context for the valley, which really gets us right to the heart of Christianity. Now, most of you are familiar with C.S. Lewis. He's arguably the greatest Christian apologist of the 20th century, a man of high intellect, and high curiosity. And Lewis liked to reason everything out. And in Lewis's early years, he was an atheist. And yet, through his own reasoning, he became a Christian. Lewis recognized, as we all do, that there are many laws of nature that we live with. One of them, for example, is gravity. God created this law of nature, and man cannot alter it or change it. It is the way it is. But Lewis came to the conclusion that there is also a moral law. And a moral law means there is a discernment between good and evil among humans. And there is no other species of life on earth that has a moral law, only humans. And we often refer to it as our conscience. And it is a gift from God. There is no other rational justification for the existence of man's conscience other than God planted it in us. So if there is a moral law, which Lewis referred to as the law of human nature, then there has to be a moral law maker. And that lawmaker is God. The difference between laws of nature and the moral law is that humans are not bound to follow the moral law. Lewis stated human beings universally recognize the law of human nature and human beings universally break the law of human nature. So do humans break the moral law all the time? 
Do we always do good? Do we always do what we should in every circumstance? Are our thoughts always good? Are we ever prideful or selfish? Do we always love our neighbor more than ourselves? Do we gossip? Do we always love God above everything else? So even there, though there is a moral law, and even if we constantly put forth the effort to do good, we fail. Only one person has ever not broken the moral law, and that was Jesus. And it is clear that the moral law reflects God's nature. Lewis said the moral law is an expression of God's nature and is good because God is good. So now, mankind is faced a dilemma. Ever since Adam and Eve, against God's command, sinned in the Garden of Eden by eating fruit from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, and Lewis reasoned that if man cannot match the standard of God's moral law, then man cannot be in God's presence. That presents a dilemma for us, doesn't it? And for all mankind. And this is where Jesus enters the scene. John 3.16, one of all of our favorite verses. For this is how God loved the world. He gave his one and only son that everyone who believes in him would not perish but have eternal life. Because God sent his son into the world not to judge the world but to save the world through him. Jesus came to earth to forgive men of their sins and create a pathway through him for mankind to reach God in heaven. And having reasoned this out, C.S. Lewis realized that Christianity was the only religion that remedied mankind's dilemma. And of course, once converted, he became an amazing Christian apologetic for the remainder of his life. And Lewis said, human beings all over the earth have this curious idea that they ought to behave in a certain way and cannot really get rid of it. They do not, in fact, behave that way. They know the law of human nature, and they break it. And these two facts are the foundation of all clear thinking about ourselves and the universe that we live in. So Christianity tells people to repent and promises them forgiveness. It is after you have realized that there is a moral law and a power behind that law, which is God, and that you have broken that law and put yourself wrong with that power, it is after all this... And not a moment sooner, Lewis says that Christianity begins to speak. Lewis stated, Christians tell you how the demands of this law, which you and I cannot meet, have been met on our behalf. How God himself sent his son to become a man to save man from the disapproval of God. And so Lewis said, the Christian religion is a thing of unspeakable comfort. And here is where the connection to walking through the valley of the shadow of death enters. You see, Jesus set the precedent for the valley. Now, we mentioned earlier in the psalm, David descended into the valley and then ascended out of the valley. Let's consider Jesus. His psalm was in heaven. His life was pretty good there, I imagine. And yet he descended from heaven to earth to become a man in the flesh Philippians 2 says, Paul says that Jesus being in the very nature of God did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. 
Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness. And being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on the cross. So during his 33 years on earth, Jesus descended even further when he suffered beating and humiliation at the hands of Pontius Pilate. And he died a death reserved for the worst of criminals of crucifixion. And he was nailed naked to a cross. And at the end, he was forsaken even by his father in heaven. And he descended even deeper when he was buried. And yet on the third day, he arose and he ascended into heaven to sit at the right hand of the father. Jesus endured unspeakable torture so that we as Christians can have a pathway through him to heaven and to come before God the Father, righteous. C.S. Lewis commented, when Christ died, he died for you individually, just as much as if you had been the only person in the world. But what did it take for this to happen? Well, you might say it took Jesus descending from heaven into the valley, which is earth, where his work on earth was accomplished, and then he ascended back into heaven. And C.S. Lewis realized that each Christian follows this pattern when they are saved. We descend by confronting ourselves and then accepting our sinful condition outside of Christ, whereupon we ascend as we ask Jesus to be our Lord and Savior. We descend as we put to death that old man before Christ and then ascend as we're indwelled by the Holy Spirit. And when we are baptized, we descend into the water and then we ascend out of the water. So that is the pattern of what happens in the valley during our lives. Now, we descend for many reasons. Valleys exist in our lives. They are there for a purpose. Just as Jesus had descended to earth for a purpose. And I think Romans 3 was probably very helpful to C.S. Lewis as he reasoned his way through this. It says, we are made right with God by placing our faith in Jesus Christ. And this is true for everyone who believes, no matter who we are. For everyone has sinned. We all fall short of God's glorious standard. Yet God, in his grace, freely makes us right in his sight. And he did this through Christ Jesus when he freed us from the penalty of our sins. For God presented Jesus as the sacrifice for sin. People are made right with God when they believe that Jesus sacrificed his life, shedding his blood for us. So if God is holy and pure and exalted, higher than the heavens, and if he expects of us holiness and purity, even as he is pure, then how greatly do we need a savior to deliver us from our sins? In the valley, we learn to repent, to forgive, to grow, to change, to accept, to appreciate, to make different choices, to be overhauled, to receive mercy and grace, to be repaired, to ask forgiveness, to ask, pick ourselves up and try again, to startle our sluggish contentment, to confront our pride, to tame our self-righteousness, to be reminded of God's love, 
and to rekindle our first love for him. In essence, we are renewed and even improved. And as we learn all this by trusting in the one who first descended for us. So what more can Jesus do to, in our, in, to earn our trust than what he has already done for us? In the valley, we are often confronted with the reality that seeking something in our life other than God that will make us happy in this life is simply impossible. So you might ask, time out. Richard, this is all well and good, but have you ever been in a valley? Well, I'm glad you asked that. Because this morning I want to share two of my valley experiences. You know, we shared some amazing encounters with Jesus here at Renew over the past few months. And let me begin by just saying that my encounter with Jesus is he got me fired from my job. So here's the rest of the story. In the mid-90s, Melanie and I lived in the Bay Area. I was an executive with a Fortune 500 company. I was very well compensated. And we were living a life in a very worldly fashion. And in our mind, we were kind of on top of the world. We were not saved to Jesus. And on Sunday mornings, rather than reach for my Bible, I reached for the Advil. Well, one Friday, my boss called me into the office, and I was fired. And I was beyond shell-shocked. I said, this cannot be happening. I thought, at the least, I was devastated. Well, that set the stage for what I would consider to be about a two-year valley experience for Melanie and I. We kind of both felt hopeless in my work. I felt despair and confusion. I, however, was confident I would soon find another similar job. Well, we sold our home quicker than we anticipated, moved back to Modesto, which we had left in 1989, and we moved in with Melanie's parents. And over the next eight months, I had many job interviews, but no offers. I was very discouraged. And then a former business associate of mine offered me an opportunity to go in business myself as a business consultant, and we, I could stay in Modesto. So we were able to stay here. We bought a house, and we're going to live in maybe a year or two. And then the Lord arranged a chance meeting with someone I had worked with in the Bay Area who lived in Modesto. And we renewed our friendship, and he invited us to attend church. And six weeks later... We were saved. Soon after, our children were. And a few years later, Melanie's mom and dad were saved. And reflecting on that entire experience, it is clear to me that Jesus got me fired because it was necessary to begin a journey in a valley that led Melanie and I to him.
<clears throat> I think I need more water. And after I was saved, I had that reflection. And I can tell you that I praise him every day for getting me fired from that job. In that house we were going to live in for a year or two, we've now been in for 26 years. So much for plans. Now fast forward 14 years to 2012 and I was diagnosed with aggressive prostate cancer. And I was back in a dark valley, but the difference was this time the Lord was there with me. And the day I was to have my surgery, I walked into doctor's hospital at 4.45 in the morning. And the lobby was dimly lit and it was empty. Except for Pastor Franz Bischoff, who many of you know. God bless his soul. And he was sitting there with his Bible waiting for me. And I <laughs> sat down and he prayed Psalm 121 over me. Which begins, I look up to the mountains. From where does my help come from? My help comes from the Lord who created heaven and earth. And I felt God's presence in a way that I had never felt before. And I walked into that operating room knowing that God was with me, that he went before me. And even though, yes, I was walking in the valley of the shadow of death, I was not alone. And I learned that when we have nothing left but God, we will find that God is enough. Now, here I am 11 years later and doing great, and I can contrast my own personal experience of being in a valley without God and being in a valley with God, and I can tell you there is no comparison that we, when we are pushed beyond our resources is when we discover God's resources. And if you sit here this morning and you are not saved to Jesus Christ, then you need to ask him into your life today. And if you are a Christian and you're in a valley, but you have not cried out to Jesus, if your love needs to be rekindled, then you need to pray him back in your life, just like he did with me when he lifted me up, and he will do the same for you. You see, as Christians, when we walk through the valley of the shadow of death, we have hope for glory. The apostle said, for me to live is Christ and to die is gain. And then he said, when I am weak, then I am strong because that is when the power of Jesus Christ and the Holy Spirit is in control and will lift you up. So why do you think King David changed from talking in a third person to a second person when he said, yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, you are with me. Not he, you are with me. Isn't it because when you're walking in the valley of the shadow of death, when the presence of God is felt more closely in your life, if you are trusting in God, if you are open to his working in your life, if you are surrendering to him and letting him guide each step, and in those circumstances and situations, you will draw perhaps nearer to God than you ever have. 
And I think for me that the extraordinary blessing of the valley is that even though I have challenges in my life, Jesus is ever more present. And that reality gives me such peace and comfort and confidence and hope. And if you think about Psalm 23, you might think about the order of the verses. After walking through the valley of the shadow of death in verse 4, verse 5 reads, you prepare a feast for me in the presence of my enemies. You honor me by anointing my head with oil. My cup overflows with blessings. And consider that in verses 5 and 6. With that anointing, that those many blessings might not come to us without those experiences in the valley. That we descend, that we might grow, that we might draw near to God, and we might be tested with trials. And then when we walk out of those trials, we are prepared for that feast. We are prepared for that anointing. We are prepared for that oil to be showered over us. And we are walking on that path of righteousness, which eventually leads us right into heaven. You know, I really love the New King James translation, so I read it this morning. Verse 4, the valley of the shadow of death. I think it communicates something that some of the other translations miss. You might ask, well, what creates the shadow? Well, it's the light. The light controls the shadow. And without light, there is no shadow, only darkness. And Jesus is that light. And this tells us as Christians, there is no death. Our death is merely a shadow. And as we walk through the valley, the light never leaves us. And if this is our last journey through the valley, then we are rejoicing in heaven with Jesus. And as Christians, we are privileged to live the best life the sight of heaven. And yes, we will experience valleys. And yes, there will be pain and suffering and loss. But when we descend into those valleys and as we walk through those valleys with our eyes focused on Jesus, we remember that he first descended for us. And then he ascended to make rooms in his father's house for us. And our final ascent will be to live in eternity with him. Now listen to this. You're going to like this. And in heaven, hanging on that wall in your room, just might be your canvas that he's been painting all the days of your life. For you are his masterpiece. In closing, there is no valley too long, no valley too wide, no valley too deep that Jesus will not save you from if you trust in him. And if you will, when you walk in that dark valley, you will not fear, for you are not alone. Let's pray. Father God, it's... Uh, such a blessing, Father, to know that you are here with us, that you desire to hear from us. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you how your word informs us. It, it uh, motivates us. It instructs us. It leads us. And Father, we thank you 
that when we're in valleys, that you are there. You are ever present. Give us the strength, Father, to trust in you, knowing that you are with us every step of the way. So, Father, we thank you for this time. We ask your blessing on each person here, Father. We pray that we might trust you in all ways, at all times, in all things. And we do pray, come, Lord Jesus, come. And we pray this in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen.